very carefully, he, he cites statistics that are provably, you know, that you can go to and, and look at. Please, yeah. Have you or anyone, has anyone had a good experience with homemade ice cream, vegan, in the ice cream maker? So the question is, has anybody had experience with homemade ice cream? Let's hold on to that question until we talk about food, because I want to get there, okay? So, but it does take a, a, an awful lot of um, pounds of grain to make, to make food that we can eat from animals. And in the case of um, a steer, uh, a cow, we only use 35 to 40% of the steer's body weight for our beef. So most of it is not for our consumption. Also, if we think about it from the common sense point of view, we used to, I used to visit Arizona periodically, and how many of you have been to Arizona or the desert southwest? Beautiful out there. We've come to really appreciate and enjoy the desert environment, but it wasn't always that way. It used to be more of a riparian environment with water and with frogs and toads and all that kind of thing. But what we did is we took our, our, um, uh, our grazing animals, our cows there, and they would eat up all of this grassland. And then what would happen is, to add insult to injury, they wouldn't die there, and their biomass eventually be returned to the soil. But they'd graze there, and then they'd be put into stock cars and be sent to Chicago and be murdered and ground up and that kind of thing and made into um, food. So the biomass isn't even returned, and what happens is they eat up the grasses and then, you know, and they uh, dry up the water and they desertify where they're at. There's a guy named uh, Lynn Jacobs, I think his name is. He investigated this about the problems with ranch lands out west and how the, all the water was drying up. And he tried to publish a book, which he eventually did. His life was threatened many times, and um, he had a hard time putting that book out, just telling the truth about what's going on out there. So. The way we raise animals is extremely inefficient from an environmental point of view. It affects rainforest biodiversity. We have this insatiable de um, desire to have meat. And so what we do is we're running out of grazing lands in the United States. So we tell our Brazilian friends, Brazilians, why don't you grow some beef, have some cows, kill them, and, and we want the beef. And what the Brazilians do, because the money is good, they say, sure, we have lots of space. We're a huge country, but we have all these trees. So we'll just cut the trees down. We all know that the rainforests are full of biodiversity. There's all these undiscovered medicines that are coming from the rainforest that could come from the rainforest. And by killing the trees and creating grasslands and then, you know, um, uh, hurting the biological diversity there, that's not doing anybody any good. And that's also contributing to global warming. So I don't think that's a good recipe for, um, for us. Um, it takes a lot more water to grow animal food versus plant-based food. Uh, it takes a lot of fossil fuels and so forth. Um, there was a really interesting report from the United Nations, which is a very conservative organization. But the UN came up with the startling finding, the FAO, the Food and Food Agriculture Organization. I can't remember what FAO stands for. And what they said is that meat and milk production generates more greenhouse emissions than all forms of transportation combined. So let me say that in a facetious way. Uh, if you have a choice of driving an SUV <laughs> or eating a hamburger, the statistics show that you're causing less harm to the environment by being a vegan driving an SUV than eating meat and... Wait a minute. Wait a minute, I'm confused. The, the SUV causes, more environmental, causes less environmental damage than eating meat. <laughs> so if you have to do just one, <laughs> then drive that SUV. <laughs> But of course, you shouldn't do either one, is what I would argue from an environmental point of view. Um, so the, the same report said that um, meat and milk production is one of the top two or three most significant con contributors to uh, the most serious environmental problems at every scale 
from local to global. It's also a major source of land and water degradation. There's another organization. There's a lot of statistics that show that eating animals is the worst thing you can do for the environment. There's another organization called the Union of Concerned Scientists. Has anybody heard of the Union of Concerned Scientists? Excellent organization, DC-based. They came out with a report about five years ago, and they actually identified vehicle use as the number one contaminant to the environment, and meat-based, animal-based food is a very close second. So they would make a slight argument, according to their five-year-old data, that meat-eating is second worst, and the UN would say it's the worst. But whether it's the worst or second worst, why do it? Why not, move, why not eat less meat, move more towards plant-based diet, convert the energy from the sun more directly, and the food you're eating today, the samples that Ashlyn kindly provided, is good food, isn't it? It's not, I don't think you've, you've, anybody here feels deprived by eating the food we're, we're enjoying here. The next bullet is about world hunger, and there's some idealism here because this is only one part of the puzzle. And these numbers are a little bit old. The footnote, I think, is about four or five years old, but the trends are about the same. We have more than 4 billion, more than 5.6 billion people today. But at that time, only four out of the 5.6 billion, not even two-thirds of, the, or about two-thirds of the world's population was properly nourished. If everybody became vegan, the current vegetarian food production could nourish 7 billion at that time. It's probably more today. This is just one element. I mean, there's politics and there's distribution issues. So this is, you know, take this with a grain of salt. Let me say something else icky for a minute is manure. If uh, you need to use the bathroom, Ashland will direct you. I'm sure there's some bathrooms nearby. So we use, um, um, we use sanitary uh, systems to take care of our waste. Well, our friends, the animals, don't have waste systems. When's the last time you saw a pig on a toilet or a cow on a toilet? I don't think any of us have probably ever done that. And we know, for example, uh, in Smithfield, if you're driving on Route 40 or 95 and you go past Smithfield, there's quite a strong odor because there's a strong concentration of pigs there because they're there to be killed. And so what happens with their droppings, you could make an argument that a small number of animal droppings may be beneficial in a garden, for example, as manure possibly. Okay? But with that concentration, it's not good for the environment. You get a lot of concentration of heavy metals, for example. So in the United States, there's 130 times as much animal manure as human manure. 130 times as much. And it doesn't go through a sanitation system. The Environmental Protection Agency has found that most of our rivers and streams, 60%, are impaired. And this is a couple-year-old statistic. I'll bet the number's higher today, unfortunately. And the biggest source is agricultural runoff, all those factory farms. Yes? And what about methane? We haven't even talked about methane. Methane is another big impact in terms of all those cows and pigs and the, the methane they generate. That yeah, definitely contributes. Yeah, it's a greenhouse gas effect, yes. I've already kind of covered this, but let me ask you a, a question. Um, how many of you have a cat at home? Okay. So if I gave you $1.35 to feed your cat a month, would you be happy? Could you feed your cat for $1.35 a month? Probably not. Well, let's look at this scenario. Let's assume that um, you, know, you enjoy living in Raleigh or Durham or Chapel Hill, wherever you live. But one day you get kind of tired about it. You say, well, I heard this talk by this silly guy, Dilla Barman, and he had all these crazy theories, and he's so wrong about that, and I live in this liberal area. I don't like liberals. I'm going to go out west and get me a ranch and have some cows and live like a real woman or a real man and grow my own food, that kind of thing. So I'm going to have this ranch land. Well, the U.S. government will lease you land, and they'll charge you $1.35 a month. And this is, again, an old statistic. Maybe it's gone up a little bit, but I don't think it's gone up much. 
Um, so this is about 10 years, 10 years ago. So you pay the $1.35 to the government, okay? Now one day, your cow is attacked by a coyote, okay? What you do is you pick up your phone and you call the federal government. President Bush, I'm giving you good tax money and I'm paying the $1.35 a month and my cows are being attacked. President Bush, or his, you know, he won't talk to you, but I mean, in this context anyhow, but, you know, your representative or what have you, will say, I'm really sorry, Ashlyn, and I want to, you know, to support your lifestyle. So what we'll do is we'll, we'll send out, uh, you know, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, and they'll investigate, and they'll do some investigation. It happens again. And you say, I've had enough. I'm paying big bucks to you, and you're causing problems to my food source. So what we'll do is, is uh, the government will put up a fence around that acre or however many acres it is. Still this happens. The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service will come and try to shoot the coyote, okay? All for $1.35 a month. Does it cost $1.35 a month to do that? No. So where's that money coming from? It's coming from us. It's from our tax money. We are subsidizing meat. I have no idea how much a hamburger costs at McDonald's. Dollar, two dollars. I'll bet you if we tabulated the true cost of that hamburger in terms of the water resource and in terms of the environmental degradation, it's got to be 20 or 25 dollars. I'm just guessing. And that difference, instead of one, that $19 difference, is from our pockets. It's the money we pay to the federal government. It's our tax money. So vegan or not, we are contributing to this kind of lifestyle, which is very sad. Okay? So that's what $1.35 is about. Um, these cows aren't picky eaters. They strip land and destroy ecosystems. When they go to the bathroom, their dung hardens in the sun. So anything underneath it is not viable anymore. It can persist for months or years. Tells what it covers. Not a good story, is it? <laughs> so environment. In fact, I would argue that it's hard to call yourself environmentalist if you're eating animal-based products. And, you know, I admire people who work for the environment in the Sierra Club or what have you. And I like, you know, the land conservation. All these kinds, There's so many things you can do for the environment. But by far the most powerful thing you can do is to move towards a plant-based diet. So people who call themselves environmentalists really need to be vegan first. If they're vegan, then the other things are great. If they're not vegan, you know, the rest of the things, while they're good, don't have as much of an impact as what they're eating. Okay? But another reason to move towards a plant-based diet is ethics. And I, I teach a course at Duke on Gandhi and nonviolence. Gandhi is one of my heroes. And so Gandhi <laughs> and many other people, Martin Luther King, and a number of people in the King family, by the way, I understand are, are vegetarian or vegan. I'm not positive exactly who, but I know some of them are. So Gandhi argued about Ahimsa, or Ahimsa, which is an ancient Jain concept. Jainism is the world's oldest religion, and Jainism is a philosophy that's really focused on nonviolence, not causing harm. Ahimsa, non-harm. Okay? So why harm others? Let's minimize our impact on the earth. Let's use our resources fairly, sustainably. Clearly animals suffer. I have another talk I sometimes give on animal rights, and we talk about, there's a Descartian view, Rene Descartes, many of you are familiar with, uh, his philosophy, uh, I think, therefore, I am. Many of us probably know that. Well, Descartes actually argued that animals don't feel pain, and if you hear a dog screeching, it's just an instinct. You can kick your dog, you can kill a cow, you can kill a chicken, and the chicken runs around. No pain. It's just a bunch of, you know, it's like a machine. So it's like a squeaky door, actually, is what he said. So depending on, I guess your library has been renovated, so it probably won't work, but if we were to slowly open the door and it would squeak, Descartes would argue, don't have compassion for that door, you're being totally silly, it just squeaks, it's just a squeaky door, so there's no pain. I don't think anybody here would believe that. Animals do feel pain. So, why cause suffering to animals? Animals clearly want to live. They don't like the idea of being fished or killed. Um, so why do it if, if we don't have to do that? Live simply so that others may live. 
if you're interested in religion, uh, my friend Rin Berry, uh, he's a professor in New York, he's written an excellent book, which I recommend you pick up in the library, Ashlyn, <laughs> called Food for the Gods. Food for the Gods argues, he, it's, there's something like a dozen chapters, and he's covered many of the world's religions, uh, Roman Catholicism, Protestantism, Islam, Judaism, Hinduism, Jainism, Buddhism, um, a number of others. And each chapter has two sections. The first section is he introduces, well, what is Jainism about? What are the fundamental precepts? Who was the founder and what did they believe? According to his research and what he presents in the book, all of the founders, whether it's Mohammed or Jesus or Mahavir, were vegan. And he gives evidence why he feels that. And he also feels that they preach that. And then what he does in the second half of the book is he takes a modern proponent of Roman Catholicism, say, who also preaches that, and who says in the Roman Catholicism, for example, point of view, to be a better Roman Catholic, you should be plant-based. So he gives examples of leaders in each of these religions who feel that. So if you're interested in religion, I recommend this book. But, you know, what's probably the best reason, we talked about your own health, we talked about the environment, we talked about some people's ethical concerns, but I think maybe the best reason to move towards a plant-based diet is taste. And you've all already confirmed that the, the yummy things in the back are, in fact, yummy. Um, uh, people who move towards a plant-based diet, even if they're still eating some meat, often find that in the days they ate a lot of meat, their plates kind of looked the same. There was this brown thing, some sort of meat, maybe some gravy, maybe a little bit of vegetable, and maybe a slice or two of tomato. Or, or in, in President Bush Sr.'s days, didn't we call ketchup a vegetable or something like that? <laughs> When we move towards a plant-based diet, we find there's a tremendous amount of diversity. Whether you visit Middle Eastern cuisines and find out about falafel and hummus and tahini, or you look at North Indian cuisines and you look at all these nice rice and potato dishes and whole wheat, chapatis, or you go to South Indian cuisine and look at rice-based dishes, like how many of you have heard of dosas, which is one of my favorite foods? Wow, I'm impressed. Dosas or idlis or uttapam, or you go to Japan and find out about you know, they're various, they're sushis, they're, they're rice and vegetable sushis, and, and uh, they're soy products, and, and so forth. There's so much to eat that's plant-based. I'll brag a bit now. I've known this lovely young lady, my wife here, for um, more than four years. We've been married about three, right? We just celebrated our third anniversary. And uh, we don't have an internet connection here, do we? Okay. So... Um, um, I've known her for more than four years, and I do all the cooking in the house. Uh, I also teach a, a vegan cooking class. And um, to this day, I haven't repeated a dinner for her. So more than four years. We eat out, too, so it's probably three and a half years worth of, you know, so more than a thousand dinners consecutive and not one repeat. Have I ever repeated something like that? Never. So, and I have tons more ideas. And I, and the other thing is she doesn't eat tofu. Tofu bothers her stomach. So the food I cook is all vegan. No tofu, no repeats in four plus years. So if somebody tells you the ideas you got make sense, but you'll never do it, there's not enough diversity, what are you going to eat? Beans and rice? Well, look at my blog. My blog is Dilip Dinner, my first name Dilip, D-I-L-I-P Dinner, dot blogspot.com. And every day I take a picture and I write about what I've cooked and invite people's comments or suggestions or what have you. So I use my blog as a resource for myself. Sometimes I'll have some okra from the farmer's market and I'll want some ideas. So I'll go to my blog and on the top you can search. So I'll say okra. I really do because I want to make sure I'm not repeating. So I'll say, well, what did I do with okra in the past? Can't do that again. So she complains a bit because there's some dishes she really, really likes. So I don't know how to handle that yet. 
but taste is great. There's an amount, a tremendous amount of diverse um, vegan food, and you're not eating the same old meat and potatoes every day. But you can do that too. So suppose you're eating a lot of meat and potatoes, and one of my arguments has convinced you to move a little bit more towards a plant-based diet. You can eat kind of meat and potatoes. You like, you know, hot dogs and uh, French fries or whatever. Then there's all sorts of no or low-fat soy-based hot dogs. I'm not arguing you should eat a lot of these. They generally have a lot of sodium. But I'm not a nutritionist. I'll bet you the nutritional um, benefit of um, soy-based hot dogs has got to be a lot better than that of a pig or beef-based one. But there are analogs. So if you have a hankering for, you know, cold cuts, there's steak and bacon, phony bologna, there's uh, salamis, there's even fish. Um, personally, Sanita is a lifelong vegetarian. These things don't appeal to us, but we have no problem with people eating it. The only exception we make is there's a product we just love. There's a sausage, and it's made using traditional sausage-making techniques. It's a purely vegan company. Uh, what are they called? Field Roast. They're out of the West Coast. And it's Field Roast. Field Roast. F-I-E-L-D. Field Roast. And they sell them at Whole Foods and um, I'm not sure where else. And they're fabulous. They're wheat-based. There's no soy in them, and that's why we can enjoy them. We like them in spite of the fact they look like sausage. <laughs> um, so that's really quite good. So if you want meat and potatoes, you can have vegan analogs. It's easy to prepare plant-based foods. Um, my friends who eat animals, they have to be, I think, aware of the cutting boards and salmonella, this and that. But with plant-based foods, that's far less of an issue. I mean, you still want to eat hygienically. Um, ask Elise. She took my cooking class. Uh, so, and I encourage anybody who's interested, I'll tell you about my cooking class a little later if you're interested. There's so much vegan, vegetarian, convenience food. Um, I have a bullet here, which eventually I'll probably remove from my presentation. I'm not a nutritionist, but one thing that I'm a little bit wary of is a lot of people who jump on the bandwagon, cut back their meat consumption, think that tofu is what we need to eat. If my parents were sitting here, my mom would tell you she's, I don't think, ever in her life eaten tofu. You don't have to eat tofu to be a vegan. In fact, some people, like my wife, don't eat tofu or my mom. Tofu also sometimes bothers my stomach. Um, and there's evidence, and I'm, I don't have any references at this point, but there's, there's evidence that the isoflavones in, in soy products can help avoid things like breast cancer, but there's also evidence that too much tofu can actually bring on some of those problems. So just like with anything else, too much of a good thing may not be so good. What I choose to do in my own life is I, I do think there's benefits to soy. There's benefits to so many other foods, lentils, black beans, so many other foods. But tofu, if you think about it, isn't so natural. If you eat tofu, you have this white block. What they do is they take the beans and they smush them. They use a masher and they smash it. So it's, it's, it's fractionated. It's not whole. Tempeh is something I eat. Many of us won't be familiar with tempeh. Tempeh is the whole soy. Tempeh is an old food from Indonesia. Okay? It's a staple in Indonesia. I've never been to Indonesia. We're going in two years. Uh, but apparently it's available as a street food even. When you go to Indonesia, you can get baked tempeh, fried tempeh, sauteed tempeh, you can get tempeh in sauces, all sorts of tempeh. It's very, very common there. Just like I guess falafel would be in the Middle East or maybe hot dogs are here. So tempeh is very common. Tempeh is a whole soy product. You have the soybeans. And then just like, for example, in making cheese, a mold is injected. And then the tempeh hardens and becomes a cake. And then you can slice it and saute it or mix it in sauces. That's what we eat. It's easily digestible and it has, you know, the benefits that you may get in tofu without some of the, some of the problems. So, but one thing you can do if you want is treat tofu as meat. If you're making uh, ground beef tacos, get all your ingredients, but instead of beef, take your tofu and smash it 
and saute it in the griddle and get it brown and treat it like tofu. So you can do that kind of thing. You can also use something called textured vegetable protein. Again, I'm not suggesting that we eat a lot of these particular products, but they are options. We don't have time to talk about raw foodism, but some people, uh, you know, if you, um, you, you know, if you if you are a raw foodist, there are some arguments for raw foodism. You can go to any grocery store and get your fill there. So that's that's an option. We used to, in the Vegetarian Society, every year do an event called the Great American Meat Out, and we'd go to a homeless shelter, the Durham um, Rescue Mission. And um, ethics comes after survival, okay? So if you're trying to survive, I think all of you in the audience are probably open to a lot of the arguments I'm making, but imagine that we're down and out, we've lost our jobs, and we've sold our homes, and we only have the clothes on our backs, and we don't even have money to take showers every day, and we smell bad, and that kind of thing. I'm not suggesting people at the Durham Rescue Mission smell bad, but uh, they're down and out. And so their first goal is to get back on their feet, get a job. So when we talk about plant-based diet, I don't usually talk about ethics towards animals and this kind of thing, but what I do talk about is that they'll probably find that they'll be more alert, less disease, less ability to, I mean, more ability to find jobs, be available for their work, and also they'll find um, economically, instead of spending money on meat, they can spend money, much less money, and you can, you can eat beans and rice for next to nothing. You know, that is an option. So economically, that's one good argument for moving to the plant-based diet. So let's talk about some practical things. I'll try to wrap up soon. There's different kinds of vegetarians. So the most general vegetarian, somebody one day says, I don't want to kill animals. You know, a lot of times we have kids and they go to maybe a, a zoo, say, and we don't have time to talk about uh, about zoos and why maybe zoos aren't such a good idea. But they'll say, oh, I just fell in love with the, with the pigs there. Why are we eating them? So sometimes they'll give up eating flesh and they'll become oval lacto-vegetarians. Lacto-vegetarians are unusual. They tend to be people from India. It's unusual to find a lacto-vegetarian elsewhere. Lacto-vegetarians will say, ew, that egg, that came from a chicken's reproductive tract. It doesn't sound like the thing that we want to put in our bodies. So no eggs for us, but bring on that milk. Okay? So they're lacto-vegetarians. Okay? And in fact, you'll find that people from India, if you have friends of Indian background, quite likely, and if they're vegetarian, quite likely they're drinking milk, more than you are probably if you're not Indian. Indians drink a lot of milk, they use a lot of dairy products. And you'll find that Indian vegetarians often are as or more unhealthy than us, than American meat eaters, um, because of the animal protein in their dairy products. So it's very common in Sangeeta's family, my family, anybody we know of Indian background, it's very common to hear, oh no, uncle so-and-so, auntie so-and-so has um, bone disease, has heart disease. It's because of that milk, the dairy products. Okay? So lacto-vegetarians don't eat flesh or eggs. Um, vegans, like myself and my wife, don't like to use animal products, and usually it's a lifestyle issue. It's not just a food issue. So for example, we'll wear belts that look like leather, no leather, or wear shoes that look like leather, no leather. So for us, we try to live our lives with minimal impact to animals. You can't be 100% vegan, uh, but you know many of us try to minimize what we do to animals. Okay? And there's other, other definitions. I'll very quickly mention fruitarians. Some of my Jane friends are fruitarians. What a Jane might argue is that we really shouldn't be eating potatoes or onions, because by eating the onions or potatoes, we're killing microorganisms. And in fact, we're beheading the plant, aren't we? And the plant has to die. Isn't it better to eat tomatoes? Because the plant lives on. We don't kill the plant, we just eat the tomato. So that's another step. I'm not a fruitarian, but I think it's a very interesting argument. Uh, it's, it's driven by compassion. Some common misperceptions. Where do you get your protein? Well, what are the biggest land animals? Orangutans, elephants, they're 
vegan. <laughs> um, they get their protein from greens, leafy greens. There's plenty of protein available. You and you know, a lot, the protein thing I think is a, is a throwback to World War II when there were a lot of shortages. I, I think that's where it comes from. So people often say, where do you get your protein? I don't think I've ever met a single person who is low on protein. If you become a vegan and eat nothing but potato chips and french fries, you will be low on protein and you'll be anemic, you'll have lots of problems. But if you're eating a reasonable diet, uh, you're not going to have a protein issue. So, you know, ask a dietitian, ask a doctor, when's the last time you saw somebody with protein deficiency? When they had a wino come in or when they had somebody who was just on an extremely crazy diet. So protein really should not at all be an issue. Difficulty of what to cook. I've told you I've spent more than four years. Yeah? Sorry, can you go back to protein? Sure, please. What's your opinion on protein powders? Okay. Supplementing Thanks for asking. The question is, what about protein powder? So maybe I'm moving towards a vegan diet and I'm concerned about the protein. Well, well first of all, going back to my earlier point, I mean, don't take it on my, uh, but, but consult with others, but you probably don't need to worry about the protein. Second thing, again, I'm not a dietitian, so take this with a grain of salt, but a concentrated source of a protein powder to me sounds a little bit strange. It doesn't seem so natural. And the third thing I'd mention is we don't generally, in at least in the United States, see problems with protein deficiency, but we do see problems with protein overabundance. And in fact, there's a number of people who are saying that the recommended guidelines are too high. And what happens when you take too much protein is it taxes the kidneys, for example, and we see a lot of kidney disease. So I'd be careful about that. I mean, if you're, if you're a vegan and you're eating a reasonable variety of foods, you probably are okay. And to be sure, tabulate over the course of a week what you're eating and look up the USRDA requirements and what you're eating and see where you're at. And if you're eating a decent diet, you should be more than uh, covered by your protein. So what to cook, I've kind of covered that, four years, no repeat, so not so hard. Um, dining out, almost any restaurant that you go to, at least in this area, you know, sometimes we go to a restaurant and we start tentatively, oh, we're vegetarian, and they immediately often ask, oh, you mean vegan or are you vegan? So people understand, and it's usually pretty easy. Um, holidays, uh, how many of you have heard of the Thanksgiving that Triangle Vegetarian Study hosts? Okay. It's the country's largest vegetarian Thanksgiving. I hardly invite all of you to come. Um, we uh, get national press for it. Last year we had 525 people from 42 cities, 7 states. It's such a popular event that we went live on our website for this event in October at like 3 a.m. And at 5 a.m. the first reservation came in. By 8 or 9 a.m. we had, I don't know, a dozen or 20 reservations. We didn't even announce it. People were watching the website. And by the time I announced it a few days later, we were up to 100, 150 reservations. So if you're all, at all interested, watch trianglevegstudy.org in October for the announcement and, and sign up. It's, it's a fabulous event. Huge amount of food for 20 or $25 all you can eat. And it's just an amazing amount. How many of you have eaten at the Thanksgiving? What did you think, Elise? Oh, it's outstanding. Yeah. Fabulous. A lot of great food. Yeah, even my, uh, my brother-in-law and sister-in-law are not vegetarian. They came and they just I've not yet had a single person walk away saying this wasn't great. I have a couple times while people were waiting in line. Some people brought their parents from out of town and they were kind of saying, oh, you know, we're, you know, we're not happy to be here. Our son or daughter's on this crazy vegetarian thing and, you know, we'll tolerate it and then we'll eat something else later on. And I talked to each of these people during the event and they were just amazed. They all said, this is unbelievable. And I remember one couple from Florida said, we're coming back every year. This is so good. So holidays and, and raising children. I know lots of people who have, you know, who raise children very effectively. There's books about raising children vegetarian, so that's not hard. 
I skipped B12. B12 is the only thing that you do have to worry a little bit about. So any doubters up there, out there should raise your hand and say, if there's a problem here, well, let me say this. The only source of B12 comes from the animal gut. And so if you're a doubter, you should say, aha, Dilip, we are meant to eat animals because you just said that B12 only comes from animals. Well, it's true, but it's mitigated by a couple things. Until recently, we didn't wash our food as carefully as we do nowadays. So when we would eat that apple, down the road some bird went to the bathroom on that apple and it was washed off by rain, but some remnants remained. We only need like 12 micrograms of B12, 12 times 10 to the minus 6 grams of B12 a day. We would drink water from a stream and there were fish and opossums who were urinating in the water. I mean, it's very diluted by the time you got to it, but you just need 12 micrograms. That's how we used to get our B12. Now, if you're a vegan and if you're not eating any processed foods, some processed foods do have B12. If you're a raw food vegan and you're eating very clean fruits and vegetables that are, you know, don't have any residues, you may want to think about this. It doesn't hurt to be aware if you're a vegan and maybe supplement. This is the only supplement, I'm not a nutritionist, so don't take my word for it, but if you ask me, I don't think supplementation generally is something that's necessary if you're eating a good whole food diet. But B12 isn't a bad idea. It doesn't hurt to just be safe. Uh, that's the only thing you really have to worry about. So you can take a B12 tablet once every few weeks, something like that, and uh, you probably should be fine. Uh, but definitely check with somebody on that. That's the only thing one needs to worry about. The downside of not... Yes? Does nutritional Some nutritional yeasts do, but not all nutritional yeasts. So there's one brand called Red Star B12, I think, or Red Star forgot the number, but there is one kind. So you have to be aware of the nutritional yeast, as Ashlyn mentions, is a, tr is a very nice product. I like to sprinkle it on popcorn. It adds kind of a cheesy flavor. It's quite nice. So that's the only thing you at all have to think about. So some questions to consider. If it's good for the planet and the animals, world hunger and human health, why not move towards a plant-based diet? If it, you know, if you buy my arguments. 